you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. We come back to the story of Moses. We see how his faith overcomes fear. God's people are often faced with decisions that could potentially strike a paralyzing fear into the heart of a person. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the king. They had fear before him, yet that fear that they had before the king did not prevent them from being obedient to the Lord. There are many extraordinary examples throughout Scripture were those of faith that were faced with some sort of difficulty and some remarkable circumstance, but yet they persevered through it. But we also know that this fear that was had by Moses, the fear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's an extraordinary fear of a special circumstance that likely none of us will ever face standing before a king and having to make a decision like that. So we also know that Scripture also deals with the reality of fear before men. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but kill the, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You think of Paul's description of not... Uh, fearing man over God in Galatians and how he was encouraging the church to not fear man, but rather to fear God instead. And so while there are fears that we could have that would be extraordinary, like Moses has before a king, the more mundane fears are the ones that we face that oftentimes prevent us from doing what God wants us to do. You think of Paul himself, who we see is so bold but yet we see he had fear. In Acts chapter 18, in verse 9, it says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Why does he tell Paul not to be afraid? He says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. Why does God have to come to Paul and tell him not to be afraid and to encourage him to go on with the mission? Well, because he certainly had fear. We face fear as Christians. Fear is a very real thing. Fear can actually have a physiological effect on us. I'm afraid of heights. I can just watch a video of someone climbing some heights and my hands start to sweat. There's real responses that we have to fear. So we can't discount the reality of fear and how it affects us and how it impacts us. But the thing is about Christians, and that we see throughout Scripture, is that Christians persevere through fear. And how do they do that? Well, it's by God's grace. And as we look at the text this morning, we see how grace was apparent in Moses' life, and that grace in Moses' life is manifested by faith in light of fear. So let us hear the word of God in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king. 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so three things take place in the text. The first is that Moses leaves Egypt, and how does he do this? By a sight of God. The second thing is Moses fears not the king, and why does he fear not the king? Because he has a sight of God. And then the third thing is Moses endures, and how is it that he endured? He endured by a sight of God. And so as it says in the beginning of the text, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. We have to ask this question, what period of Moses' life is this referring to? It's speaking of him leaving, ex, uh, leaving Egypt, and so this is an exodus of some sort, but Moses left Egypt twice. So which exodus is this referring to? Is this referring to what we see in Exodus chapter 2, in verse 14, where it says, He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? This is Moses trying to go to his people after he had killed an Egyptian, and they're saying, Who, who made you a judge over us? Notice what it says after this question is asked by the Hebrew. Then Moses was afraid. Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So that first exodus of Moses was actually governed, as the text tells us, by a fear. He fled because he was fearful. Many Commentators say, well, really the whole point is, is that his fear is eventually overcome and he's just actually making a, a prudent decision, and, and that might be the case. But actually we see when he comes back to Egypt and then he returns again, he's facing without fear the king of Egypt. He's facing Pharaoh. Other commentators say, no, this idea that he, he wasn't afraid of the king needs to look at the whole situation as a whole. Not only his personal individual exodus that was out of fear, but then how he conquers that fear by faith and comes back and leads the children of Israel out. And one thing is, is that we see is that Moses may have been driven by fear, but faith conquers fear. As Moses perseveres, and he might have a moment of fear, what do we see at the rest of Moses' life? Faith wins the day. Faith ultimately overrides his fear. And this is the case with God's people. Abraham and Sarah, they fluctuated in their walk and their, their faith with fear, but faith won the day. So there's an important principle that we have to look at here as we recognize the text says he wasn't afraid. And then when we go to Exodus, we see there's clearly a point of fear in Moses' life. Is this, is that faith and fear may reside in the same heart at the same time. Faith and fear may reside in the same heart at the same time. And because one has fear does not mean they do not have courage, nor does it mean that they lack faith. 
Fear is very natural to what we experience on a regular basis. For Moses, he has chosen to be uh, the deliverer that God has risen up to to see his will through to deliver the children of Israel in promise to Abraham. And through this, he has to face a very frightening situation. He has to face a very angry and volatile king that has been killing people that has tried to extinguish the Jewish people as a whole. And so when we don't think of his fear, uh, his fear, it is a rightful fear that he is facing. Now, on Moses' return to Egypt, we want to recognize the fact that he has several points where he has to overcome the obstacles of fear in his life. As God calls him, As he's out there shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, he has to actually face those very things that he feared. In Exodus chapter 3, we begin to see this unfold. And I'm not going to go through the whole chapter. Let me just give you the, the summary verses that I think need to stand out for us. In Exodus 3 verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now the Bible tells us Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. We see that here. He doesn't believe that he, or he puts out the obstacle, Who am I that I would do this to bring out God's people? But certainly also he's been out of the picture for 80 years. And now he has to go back to the place where he was wanted, where he was raised, where there would be certainly a remembrance of him, even 40 years later. So he puts up this this stiff arm to God and says, who am I? But look at verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. There's several important factors that God encounters this fear that Moses has and says, but I'm going to be with you. And then he states as a matter of fact, when you do this, which is for God to tell Moses, this is going to happen and I'll be with you through it all to ensure that it happens. Well, was the case closed and Moses just ran into Egypt? No. Again, Moses throws out another excuse in chapter 4. In verses 1 through 2, then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses says, you want me to go to them and say that Yahweh is enacting this great deliverance that was promised to Abraham through me, a a shepherd, out out in the desert for the last 40 years, and I just think I'm going to show up and rescue these people? They're not going to believe me, God. What did God already tell Moses? This will happen. I want you to go and do this. And so Moses puts a roadblock before God. And then the Lord said to him, what is, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff 
in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In other words, God says, I'm going to perform something through you that will confirm the message. There will be something spectacular that can only be described or, or explained as a supernatural act of God. You think Moses then would then run into Egypt. But he doesn't. In verse 10, he throws out another obstacle. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since. You, you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. He says, I can't, I can't go and speak before Pharaoh. I can't go and speak to the people. I, I can't even hardly, kind of hardly get words out of my mouth. How could I be that person? Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Interesting, he said before, I will be with you. Now he says, I'm going to be with your mouth. So that whatever comes out of your mouth will come from, from me. Verse 13, but, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Send someone else. And verse 14, you think of how long-suffering our Lord is with his people. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Each time that Moses throws out some, what in his mind is some insurmountable obstacle or objection to being sent and being used of God, God encounters it with just the simple truth. I'm going to be with you through this. My word has spoken, and it's going to happen. You don't need to have fear, Moses. Now, just because God says he's going to be with Moses, does that mean it immediately alleviated any fear from doing what was right before God? Probably not. Probably not. And that's why we started off with saying fear and faith can reside in the same heart at the same time. Now, it's interesting, just for Moses to even be in a position to be before the Pharaoh and to be able to leave Egypt, as our text in Hebrews says, he had to face several fears just before he even could get to the point of leaving Egypt, as our text says. So when we see in Hebrews where it tells us that he leaves Egypt and he doesn't have a fear of the king, we have to recognize before even getting into the position of being able to leave Egypt, what has he encountered? Several obstacles of fear that have stood in his way. And each one of those is countered by God's presence in his life. And so he first leaves Egypt with fear. But when he comes back into Egypt, it is by faith that he has overcome that fear. 
by God's grace in his life. And so Moses fears not the king by a sight of God. And if you notice how this unfolds as he is going to lead the people out of uh, Egypt, we see in chapter 5 and verse 21, still in Exodus, as he has encountered Pharaoh and says, let my people go, it backfires on him. And this is the people's response to Moses. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses' promise from God that you're going to deliver the people, you need to overcome all of these fears, you're going to, I'm going to be with you. Well, Moses goes and says, hey, let our people go. And it makes Pharaoh angry. And then it makes the people angry because the Pharaoh unleashes his wrath upon God's people. So his first encounter backfires, and it actually leads to a worsening of the situation for God's people. Let that sink in. Moses is being obedient to God's will. God's word says, do this. Moses does it. It seems in the moment that it backfires on him and makes his own people mad at him now, and also Pharaoh is still angry with him. Moses, in following God's revealed will, leads to a more difficult situation, which could have led Moses to think, maybe I misunderstood God's word. Maybe it could have led to Moses actually losing faith. But remember, the Lord said, I'll be with you. Look what happens in verse 22 of Exodus 5. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? That was the, the, the emotional state of Moses at that moment. This is worse than it was before. Why would you do this, God? If that seems like an inappropriate question to God, then just read the Psalms where you see David asking those questions over and over again. Lord, why? How long, O oh Lord? This is one of those how long, O oh Lord, moments. He goes on to say, For since I came into Pharaoh to speak in your name, I came to speak in your name. He's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Sounds like he's almost blaming God. So how does God encourage Moses? How does God encourage Moses to conquer that fear that prevented him from following God's will? Well, it happens in the first five verses of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. That's all Moses needed to hear. But in his moment of doubt, in his moment of fear that is paralyzing him, we see that God's word comes to Moses at this crucial moment, and God reveals himself. And notice what he says, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, 
But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Two big features come out of this text that God gives to Moses that's going to encourage Moses to persevere. And the first big feature is this, is the reminder of the covenant to Abraham. And the covenant to Abraham was a covenant that promised exodus. It was a covenant that promised deliverance from God's people in Egypt. And so as he brings him back, what is God bringing him back to? His Word. You think about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And how so often, when we face crucial moments in our life or we're in crisis, how the Holy Spirit will bring the Word to our hearts to comfort us, to encourage us, to move us forward in whatever situation we might be facing. That is exactly what God does with Moses, is he gives him his word and reminds him of his word. And the second thing is he reminds him of the very nature of God. He introduces himself as El Shaddai, which is to say, I am Almighty Sovereign God. He says, I am the Lord. That's all capitals. That is, I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. It's amazing that he reveals himself as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and how we read this morning the first paragraph of chapter 7 of our confession, which says that relationship is established by covenant and is a condescension of God himself in establishing a relationship with man. So when he reveals himself to Moses by the name of Yahweh. He is reminding him of a personal relationship with this God that God himself has initiated and in saying, I am with you. Now, as you read the rest of the Exodus story, there's 10 times that Moses is required to go before Moses with a plague that is warned and then takes place. And ten times, there's, there's ten total plagues that take place. And each time, what happens, it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which is the demonstration of God's sovereignty over all that's taking place and that it's unfolding in a purpose. But one thing is, is that we so often... We miss in reading the Exodus account and the plagues is that each plague came with a purpose. And I'm just going to briefly give you that purpose because it's crucial to see what God was doing before Moses, who was raised in all of the fine arts of Egyptian education. The first plague that takes place is water is turned to blood. Now, why that is important is because the God of the Nile was Hapai. And so when God turns water to blood, what is that communicating is that my God actually controls the Nile River. 
And so this was not only communication to the people of God that he is sovereign over the Egyptian gods, but this was also a sign to the Egyptians. Yahweh is over you. Then the next plague is frogs. Well, why frogs? Why did God send the frogs? Well, because of the goddess Heket, who had a frog head. What is that communicating to the Egyptians? What is that communicating to Moses? What is that communicating to the Israelites? Next is gnats. And they came out by dust. That was Geb, god of the earth and dust. What does that communicate? There was flies. That was from Kefri, who had a fly head. Each time a plague comes, God communicates his sovereignty over the Egyptian gods. Livestock, Hathor was a goddess of protection and had the head of a cow. There was boils. That's conquering Isis, the goddess of medicine. There's hail. That conquers Nut, the goddess of the sky. There's locusts. That is coming from Seth, the god of storms and disorder. There's darkness, which attacks the primary god of the Egyptians, Ra, the sun god. And then there's death of the firstborn, which actually attacks who the Egyptians would have seen as the sovereign over them, Pharaoh. Each plague that takes place, so you keep thinking, why does God keep sending these plagues? Why does he keep hardening Pharaoh's heart? It's because what he's demonstrating is his sovereignty, not only to the Egyptians that they would understand this, but this is also communicated to Moses, to Aaron, and to the Hebrews. That God is sovereign. Why would you fear the Egyptians? Look what I'm doing to their gods. Look what I am doing to the ultimate sovereign of Egypt. He takes his firstborn son. Now go back to the anger of the king for a moment. There's three primary areas that impact Pharaoh. The first is the area of work. Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh and all that takes place is actually taking away from the work that Pharaoh was enslaving the Israelites to do in the first place. So each time that there's a plague and each time something comes, the work that was being done that was important to Pharaoh is being stopped. Contributes to his anger. There's a plague that affects the people of Egypt and affects Pharaoh himself, making him angry. But the most important thing is this, is every single plague that came about was demonstrating that their entire world view and their entire way of life was a sham. Everything that they believed and what centered their world view, God confronts and shows that he is the God of the universe. He is the one true living God, and they have dead gods that they serve. All of these areas from these plagues are confronting the Egyptians to the heart. And when you read the Exodus story with the plagues and you read the narrative, you're probably wondering, how is it that Moses is just able to go before him 
and speak to him the way he does and walk into his presence and Pharaoh doesn't kill him when there is this anger of the Pharaoh there. Why is it that Moses is able to do this? It's the same way that, uh, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to go into the fire and not be consumed by it. Moses is able to go into the fire of the Pharaoh and he's not consumed by it because God is sovereign over it. And the text makes it clear. And we, we, shouldn't, be, we shouldn't try to excuse the text by trying to excuse God. The text very clearly tells us over and over again, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That doesn't mean he put something in Pharaoh's heart that wasn't there, but it shows that God was sovereign over Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is an angry king. And while it never says in Exodus, to my knowledge, that Pharaoh is angry, it is explicitly stated in Hebrews, the anger of the king. And that word anger in Hebrews is speaking of a passion, an indignation that is overwhelming, and, and it leads to destruction. So you look at the destruction that God was laying on Egypt according to his sovereign providence was the, the very destruction that was fuming from the heart of Pharaoh. The scripture in the New Testament speaks of two types of anger. One anger is a residing anger. And then there's an anger that explodes. And you'll, you'll know this about human nature is that people have different types of anger and how they express anger. And, and Scripture just simply re recognizes that. In Ephesians, it talks about two different types of anger. Wrath and anger is how they're translated in English in Ephesians chapter 4. And so Scripture actually recognizes there's these different types of anger that is manifested amongst people. That one that's a residing, you think of that slow-burning anger, and then there's that anger that just like, it's intense and it explodes, and it leaves a wake of destruction everywhere it's manifested. Well, that's the anger which is used to describe Pharaoh. Now, if you've ever been around explosive anger, it usually actually makes a person pause in fear of provoking that type of anger. Because you don't want to set it off. In fact, it can, it can lead people to just simply allow things to take place, or it can even lead them to doing things that they don't want to do because they're afraid to provoke that anger. It's a very real anger. That's the anger that's described of Pharaoh. But Scripture takes this, this, this anger of Pharaoh to another level. So you have that explosive anger that, that we've probably all at some, time, at some point experienced, or maybe we struggle with ourselves. But, but Scripture doesn't leave that type of anger just alone. It actually describes it in a very unique way when it resides with a king. Proverbs 16, 14 says this, A king's wrath is a messenger of death. In chapter 19 of Proverbs, again, speaking of a king and their anger, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion. And so you have general anger, and then you have anger that resides in the heart of a king that is sovereign over his domain and sovereign over his people. 
That's a special type of anger. Because usually when we encounter the angry person, you think of a, a very angry boss, that anger is limited. That anger is controlled and within a certain environment and can't really get outside of that environment. But the anger of a king that is sovereign over his people is a special anger. And that's simply what Scripture teaches us. That's the anger Moses has faced or is, 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 has to face. But what's amazing is whereas before he was afraid and he fled from it, now we read he is fearless before it. Now lest we give credit where it is not due, we must remember Moses was afraid and if it weren't for God's grace, he would remain paralyzed with fear. But in some way, let's kind of summarize this idea of fear in a syllogistic way. He feared not man. He feared not the greatest of men. Therefore, he endured the most fearful attribute of the most fearful man. So when we think about how he faces this, he faces the greatest attribute of the greatest man alive who wants to kill him. And how does he get through this? Well, the text tells us that he endures. He endures through it. He, he perseveres through this. And specifically, we're told he perseveres through this by a sight of God. That word endures, it means to undergo dangers with patience, with courage and resolution, to hold out until the end. So, in other words, as, he, as he's dealing with the fear before the, the Pharaoh, how does he do this? Well, he holds out despite whatever internal conflict he's, he's facing. Friends, this is a, a very real and tangible example of living through a secular society that we see in Moses. And how did he do it? Well, the text says, seeing him who is invisible. Seeing him who is invisible. The word seeing is present tense. means this, is that Moses was in a state of continually seeing God. And think about this, though. Seeing that which is invisible. How could he see God if God was invisible? What does that mean? Well, let's think theologically for a moment. God, in his essence, is invisible. We're told that God is spirit. God is not discernible by our senses. If so then we would have some sort of reference by which we would say, this represents God, and then what, what, what have we broken then at that point? We've created an idol of God. If we said God smells like this, or God looks like this, or God sounds like this, we would very quickly descend into idolatry of God. God is invisible in his essence. Otherwise, we would create some sort of picture of God. I want you to see what the scriptures say about God in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes. And when we think of God's attributes, God is his attributes. God is his attributes. That God is love, God is mercy, God is justice, and all of the things that Scripture attributes to God, God Himself is His attributes. And what does it say in the text of Scripture? His invisible attributes. 
In Colossians, in speaking of Christ, it says he is the image. That is the, something that you can see. He is the image of the invisible God. In 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, in verse 17, Paul writes, To the king of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then as he closes out his letter to Timothy, he writes this, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So it says he says the invisible God is because God in his essence is invisible. But you might say, wait, didn't God reveal himself tangibly to Moses? Didn't he tangibly hear the voice of God? Didn't he tangibly see in some sense God? Well, in some sense, he saw a manifestation that God brought about, but he never saw God's essence. Here's, here's a word that many of you know, but if, if you don't know it, it's good to hear it again, is this is theophany. Theophany is in, in the Old Testament where you see a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And you see that in the introduction and the calling of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. You see a theophany. You see a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And how does, how does God introduce himself to Moses? Well, in Exodus 3, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Out of the midst of a bush, he looked up, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, it's important to note what the text says and what it doesn't says. say. It says the fire was in the bush, but not of the bush. Those are two different things. The fire was in the bush, but not of the bush. And this reveals something essential to our knowledge of God. The bush did not fuel the fire. It was a self-generating fire. It was independent of anything in creation and was brought into existence and generated by God himself. That's the most important thing that we can know. That God in no way is dependent upon his creation. But God brings creation into existence by the mere power of his word and governs it. And this is how he reveals himself to Moses in some way that is supernatural. Showing God's sovereignty over nature in an inexplicable manner. R.C. Sproul writes this, What we call the Shekinah glory, is a, it is a refulgent glory radiating from the very being of God that is so powerful and majestic that it overwhelms anyone who comes into contact with it. This is that Shekinah glory that you see. And it says in verse 4 that God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And we can't miss what's taking place. We can't miss the impact of this. He is calling Moses out by revealing himself in this glory. And don't miss the fact that he says to him twice, Moses, Moses, because you fast forward almost 2,000 years later, you go to Acts chapter 9, and there's a bright light that appears around the Apostle Paul. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul. Saul. 
Saul and calls him to walk in obedience to him and says, by the way, you're going to suffer for my name's sake. By the way, you're going to face some difficulties. You're going to be encountering fear, but I am calling you. And God does it by revealing his glory to him. That's exactly how he calls Moses with a light. Do that which will bring suffering to you for my name's sake. And this was an act of God outside of Moses. God initiates the relationship by choosing to reveal himself to Moses. And then God continually gives Moses his word that he will be with him. And this is continually before the face of Moses. This is how it says, he was seeing him who is invisible. Now, I want you to note something crucial for the Hebrews, the, the recipients of the letter. As we have repeatedly stated, they were facing tough times. This was the reminder that God sustained Moses through legitimate fear by placing himself in the sight of Moses, and he will do that for you as well. How, how so? How will God do that for the Hebrews, and how will God do that for us as well? Think about what Christ said to his frightened disciples as he sends them out to the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ has promised his, per, his presence to be perpetually with the church. Paul writes this as we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's amazing that what, what Paul says is we are beholding. That is speaking of something present that's ongoing, but it's also in the middle voice, which means that the action is taking place upon the person. So if you are in Christ, what the text of Scripture is, is this is a continual part of our life, just as it was with Moses, that he was seeing the invisible God. So how do we endure through fair by, fair by seeing the invisible God? Very simple. Read your Bible. How does God reveal himself? Self-existent, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, merciful, gracious, loving to us, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. He is just and he is forgiving iniquity. God reveals himself to us that way throughout his scriptures. But there's something else that we have to recognize, and that is this, is that the Father reveals himself finally and completely in his Son. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. How may we know God? Through the Son. You may only see God through the Son. And there is no other way to see God, to know God, than through the Son. In fact, Paul writes Timothy and says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Who is our mediator? It is Christ, and it is Christ alone. Now, when we think of mediation, we oftentimes think of it in terms of our redemption and our salvation, and that is true. However, it is Christ who mediates the sight of the invisible God. 
so that we may see the invisible God in the Son. How do we endure? How do we endure? Well, how do we have faith that overcomes fear? By seeing the invisible God. And we see the invisible God by his revelation of himself. And the final revelation of himself is Christ. Now, when we see Christ, our eternal king, this puts everything into perspective and helps us to see the eternal perspective rather than the temporary. So whatever fears we may face in this life, they're temporary. And we must look to the invisible God in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that way we can get a sight of eternity. And then we see the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture is that there is a city that was not built by human hands awaiting us. I love Augustus Toplady. He's probably my favorite hymn writer. You know his hymn, Rock of Ages. He wrote also a song, Now Why This Fear? And he asks this to start the hymn. He says, Now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for the debt of sin, now canceled at the cross? The only fear we need to have is our fear of God. And our fear of God is canceled in the cross. That the wrath of God is no longer upon those that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who should we fear if God is for us? You know why we fear man? The Puritan William Gurnall said this, We fear man because we don't fear God. Let us put our life's in the perspective of that eternity of what God has accomplished in His Son on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that in Him we are redeemed from our sin, but that in Him we are able to see You. Father, we pray that You give us the eyes of faith to behold those things that are eternal that we would not be consumed and controlled by the temporary fears we face in this life. But, Father, may we just always recognize that we have been released from fear of sin, from fear of man, because of the work of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.